May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings have ease of well-being, free from conflict. And at the conclusion of that practice, it is directed at yourself as well, so that then the metta is complete because you bathe your own self in it. Then it's the real stuff. So now, as Ari says, there's been the unifying of the body-mind through the breathing practice. Then there's been the focusing of it and the softening of it through the metta practice. And thirdly, he does a practice he calls adhisthana of resolve. It's taking, uh, it's an exercise just as metta is an exercise of loving-kindness, this is an exercise of will, where you make a commitment, you make a pledge for where you will stand, for what you will stand, what you will serve. And that is like a platform or engine to serve you throughout the day. I commit myself to the healing of my world, this world, and the welfare of all beings. I commit myself to living more lightly and nonviolently on earth in the food products, energy I consume, etc. Whatever is the expression of your deepest desire. And the deepest desire is to be of service. And that is made conscious in that third part. So I would like to, um, for a few minutes, uh, brief you on on, um, several years' role in the tsunami. Um, It was very dramatically different from all the other kind of um, operations going on in the days and weeks 
after the uh, tragedy hit. Uh, there was a great outpouring of help in the form of boxes of food and milk and materials and clothing and so forth. And they were piled up. Maybe you remember seeing in television how they were piled up at the airport. But there were many parts of the country that it was hard to get to. And what do you do with them? You take and put them on the side of the road or what? It's not surprising that there was soon a black market in these relief items that other countries and their citizens had sent with such uh, generosity and concern, desire to help. So we all became more aware than ever of the need to have um, trained, motivated people on the ground who knew the lay of the land, who were trusted. 226 of the villages in which Zervodia worked were wiped out. There were areas that no outsider could get up into along the uh, southern coast and the whole district center is an area I know well uh, was wiped out. <clears throat> but Sarvodia working almost invisibly and tirelessly in uh, distributing the relief materials and in organizing people into camps. And so they had a number, I don't have the exact number, of uh, camps for the, uh, w those who are washed out and um, systems for them to find missing members of their family and places where the um, uh, tents could be put up and the food distributed and, and kitchens started and uh, not distribu distributing little cellophane wrapped rations but big pots of cooked food of rice and millet and curry and the women and the grandmothers coming from the nearby villages and setting up these huge kitchens. Within a day or a day and a half um, I was struck that the announcement came that Sarvodia uh, claimed not claimed <clears throat> announced that they would um, provide shelter and lodging, food and lodging and schooling for all the children orphaned in the tsunami and for all the girls up to the age of 19. They moved on it like that. And you know why? The reason is sad because it just was a matter of hours after the tragedy that there were uh, child sex slave traffickers down there in the mayhem of the 
uh, disaster uh, taking children. And so uh, I'm amazed that, that several of you moved so fast to, to uh, secure this. So this is, this is what they're involved in doing now. Tallying the food items, cooking it, and the clothing, organizing medical care, <clears throat> managing, they call them welfare camps, getting in clean drinking water, getting in first aid, medical supply, and care, which included teams of doctors. Tents and tarpaulins. This is sort of the first stage, like the first 90 days, weeks and months. Tents and tarpaulins for temporary shelter, temporary sanitary facilities. And then this huge, because um, they have been, I didn't tell you. I didn't tell you how old it is. Sarvodia was organized in 1958. It started then. It just started as a holiday camp for this science class of seniors in, in a school in Colombo. And then since then it has grown to be this uh, biggest uh, non-governmental organization in Sri Lanka and the biggest of its kind anywhere. There are people, it's a kind of wonder uh, that people have uh, been going to learn from for decades now. One of the things I learned from them was that from the start they uh, didn't get involved with politics. So they were very committed to social welfare. I mean partisan politics because seeing that this movement and its workers were becoming so very popular among the um, rural population, there were many politicians and members of parliament and people on the election circuit who wanted to come and speak at Sarvodia work camps and meetings. And I remember thinking, why don't you let, this would be great, you know. No, the people have to realize that this is their show. And if you have a politician come and talk, he'll want them to think that this, all the goodies they're getting are thanks to him. So it was almost humorous for me to watch how they would, uh, in a very uh, sly and often very upfront way, just say, another time, to a very important member of parliament. This is, belongs to the people. So they have um, over these, so it's been, what's 58? How, if you started in 58, you'd be 47, right? Yeah, it's the age of my son. Um, so that's a lot of experience in working with volunteers because most of their Workforce as volunteers, and this is what they're. Um, so this immediate relief they did within the first week. 
Then they put a lot of emphasis on reconstituting, as they said, family units and providing counseling, trauma counseling. This was still, you know, that we're still, we were involved in that um, and still are because uh, there's not much know-how in, in trauma counseling there. And there were folks from here that were trained and in that who went out and could. And their form of Buddhism, you see, is one that puts great emphasis on self-control. Not showing much emotion, if any. And that's not necessarily the best approach to trauma counseling. You want people to be able to relive and be done, you know, be finished, work through what's happened to them. Cleaning wells, the polluted wells from the from the tsunami. I realize, I don't know about you, but every point that I'm uh, taking up here is, of course, making me think of our brothers and sisters in Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama. It's humbling. And it's all also very invigorating to think of what a movement, what when it brings in as openly as Sephardia does, uh, spiritual practices, what it does for uh, the integrity and the discipline and the affection of, and the mutual trust of a group. disinfecting places that could still be used. Finding meaningful work for adults for food and cash. Organizing programs for preschool and school children. And then uh, going into much longer-term <clears throat> vision and plans. Because an area that I had been looking at with great attention on my last visits to Sri Lanka with the Sarvodia movement was how while it didn't engage directly with the government, to either accept patronage, accept government money, or to fight it, they were quite quietly and steadily building the new within the shell of the old. Because the policies of the government were very corporate-driven, free market. These were conditions uh, put down by the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. And it was causing huge disparities in economic level among the people. And so um, 
instead of uh, running against this in an election, instead of fighting it openly, quietly. Yes? I'm so sorry to interrupt you. One of our neighbors Black car, what kind of car? Here back there? So that they, instead of fighting the political economic philosophy of the party in power. The movement has been creating a society more in keeping with its values, as I say, within the shell of the old, and just establishing community banks, Sarvodia councils, microcredit schemes, and so forth. And uh, it, is not, it doesn't surprise me one little bit that they, this is their, their work for the tsunami. I mean, they took everything, all, every ounce of attention and money and personnel to meet the immediate needs of the victims of the tsunami. And they are holding that within a longer term vision of a Sarvodia society. And that every step of what they're doing is to build uh, the infrastructure, or as Ari says, the psychological infrastructure, too, uh, for this society. So um, those of you who are motivated to send support to them, to send a gift to Sarvodia tonight, it's going to go to that. It's going to go to the work they do. And it is my uh, prayer that you get a chance to uh, go sometime and uh, meet these people. I realize that as I talk about Savoy, uh, it sounds too good to be true, like I'm giving an advertisement. See here, shake well, two tablespoons of Sarvodia, and you will be, there's nothing better, there's nothing more wonderful. The place, the, the movement is as fallible as anything. Every human, the human beings there are as uh, ordinary and ornery and just like us. <laughs> but it's so, you don't have to be angelic you don't have to be super good to have a, uh, a collective endeavor that makes so much sense. It's in the uh, patterns uh, and customs that they observe, their ways of organizing that uh, are let perfectly ordinary people do extraordinary things.
So let me uh, invite some questions and comments from you. And then at the end, I would like to give you another meditation, the one that I love best that I brought back from um, their way of uh, doing what they call the four abodes of the Buddha. I'd like to share that with you at the end. But I've been, I'd like to have somebody else interrupt me. Did I see a hand? Yes. Use the mic, please. You. I wonder if you spent much time with uh, Hindu citizens in Sri Lanka and if you can talk a little bit about how the non-Buddhist community regards um, both Sarvodhya in particular and um, the Buddhist residents. Um, well, that was when I was there 30 years ago and going through the training. That was a preeminent uh, question for me. Uh, I wanted to see, because I knew I could see very clearly this movement is... Um, in Buddhist inspired so it was true trying to do two things at once it was being inspired and sharing uh, Buddhist social values and uh, be inclusive of the other communities as well now how could that work I thought to myself and so I um, watched they have uh, if you have a gathering, um, you would have uh, the, whatever the gathering is, even if it's on um, getting equipment for digging latrines, you proceed it with some form of meditation. And um, that would be uh, the minority person would lead their meditation first. And then the next... Uh, uh, least numerous. <laughs> so often be a Christian, then a Hindu, two Hindus, and then Muslim, and then the majority in the average Buddhist would have their Buddhist prayer. So there was a deliberate effort to honor other uh, religions, but it was a little tricky because people were in this highly polarized country tended to see and still tend to see Sarvodia as heavily Buddhist-influenced. They're very good friends among the, uh, the Muslim community, is working very uh, easily and vigorously uh, as part of the movement. Many of its leaders, movement's leaders are Muslim, and some are Hindu too. Um, but I think among the Hindus, there are some that are suspicious because of the terrific suffering of the Civil War that uh, Sarvodia in its manners are, uh, or in its style is a little too Buddhist for their tastes. But I know that when I was there last, the people at headquarters were being 
grail to you know learn Tamil, which is the Hindu language. It's tricky. It's hard. I may have a little trouble phrasing this. How do you think? Is this better? Yeah. How do you think we can apply the lessons that that you've learned uh, to the troubled areas of our own nation, to the to the troubling divide in our own nation, and in particular to New Orleans? And yeah, I I asked myself that when I was there, and I've asked it since. And uh, one of the things I um, we. Uh, we have our own ways, you know. And uh, when I look at uh, the new localization movement, uh, how the farmers' markets and the people helping each other on the farmers, the new on their farms, and um, the uh, cooperative uh, endeavors, I spend quite a bit of time up in Mendocino County where I got involved in their campaign against genetically modified seed. And I, it's just everywhere you look, there is uh, some uh, seeds for the future. There's, and, uh, and that is several of you, you know. Um, it doesn't, it, what I've seen closest to Sarvodia in, um, in this country uh, doesn't have the. Um, there are two things that. <clears throat> yeah, they are getting them physical work, but it's hard to, particularly in the current climate, to uh, sit a bunch of Americans down for a um, spiritual exercise or uh, prayer time. <coughs> At least if you have any clergy. I've been, I've been surprised at how easily uh, people will pray nowadays. Just coming in, not in any, um, you know, to pray for the people in New Orleans or to pray for your um, uh, that the blight won't hit your crop or to pray that these trees will stand. Uh, their prayers for the uh, that the headwaters won't be logged illegally. There's so I think that, I was about to say, we have yet to find, that to bring in the spiritual as strong as Sarvati does, but I think we are. So I'm glad for that question. We're doing it. Yeah. And I think that we have so much in our uh, background um, in the... Um, as I said, barn raisings, and they're doing that again. And uh, quilting bees. And, and the, the uh, people who are really watching uh, peak oil and what it's going to mean and what it is meaning for our neighborhoods and communities are calling for just that kind of uh, simplifying of our lives, low-tech learning, uh, hands-on skills, and uh, getting to know our neighbors. And 
I'd like to um, please make a note of your address so that I can send you a check because I don't have my checkbook. Oh, all right. Well, I'll give you an address. I'll put it up here. It's the address for uh, make the, the check to Sarvodia USA. And I have the. Here it is. I'll write it. 5716 West Manchester Avenue, number three, Los Angeles, 90045. And I'll, I'll write this out there. Somebody write it out there. Would you write it up there? So here it is. So you hold it like you're drinking from it, like it's a baby bottle. Sarvodia, S-A-R-V-O-D-A-Y-A, U-S-A. And then, uh, so we'll write up that address for people who want to send it in. A louder. Yeah. Hi, Joanna. Thank you very much. That's still not on. How's this? Hey. Technology. So, Joanna, thank you very much. That was a really interesting presentation of your experience there. And I just wanted to make it a little personal and um, let you know that my, my mind was racing into um, a lot of comparison and a lot of uh, judgment and things were arising about how um, that is not at all the way the situation in our country has been handled. In fact, it, it sort of highlighted such an incredible disparity between the description that you gave and what we've been watching on the news. And I just I found myself getting upset. <coughs> and um, I really appreciated that at the, at the end of your talk, you also reminded us that, that localization is happening here and that, for example, the best part of the stories that we heard from uh, Louisiana and the environment around it were um, people helping each other and just incredible outpourings of people realizing and out that of the local churches often yes. very poor yes and if that's all you have you have sort of nothing to lose so just mm -hmm. pitch in and, and help and see if you can make a difference it was that felt very much better to realize how much of it is is in small ways trickling in here and I'm wondering um, I have a question about <clears throat> the situation there and its beginnings, you told us, was in 1958. I'm wondering if you had one word, what would it be for why it sparked there then? Well, 
it couldn't be one word because it's because things come together which is sort of like the teaching of the Buddha it's never one thing but there was uh, one man and he had brought he was in love with Gandhian ideals and uh, and he also was open to other influences and one of the things that made the biggest difference was that he heard must have been 1957 or 8 about the work camps that the Quakers and churches were doing in Europe to rebuild Europe after the Second World War so it's just beautiful to trace the influences and he heard about that we can do that. We'll call it Ramadana. And then I, could, you know, right from the start, he said, let us do what we always did. He didn't say, I've just heard a great thing that the Westerners are doing in Europe, they're having work camps. He said, we were once the island of righteousness Dharmadvipa. We were the granary of the East before the colonials came. Danyagara. We will do what made us strong. We will share. And we will share our labor. And this is so... <laughs> when I went there for that year, I was looking around for a topic to do my book on. I thought I got more and more excited about traumatizers because they are so much fun to go to whatever it is, whether they're cleaning a canal or weaving fronds into a roof or I mean the whole show because then it does involve entertainment. So that's one thing we can learn. They entertain each other. Stories, dances and endless speeches. But they love that. You know, when you that's just as important. And so I started going to these Ramadan um, camps and I was taking notes. Now, this is so wonderful. It's just like Dady, my grandmother, talking about the barn raisings. So I went to the archaeology department and I said, I have come to do research on your ancient practice of Ramadan. <laughs> there wasn't one <laughs> he'd made it up <laughs> but, but not really because all pre-industrial societies knew how to share labor and a time for harvest you go over to your neighbor and then you go over there and you share but he had that's part of it genius to genius to uh, see that what people need most is self-respect and so he wasn't going to have them become uh, imitators of westerners anymore there's enough of that no we will do what we've always done. <laughs> and people are very proud. 
And we won't wear these trousers. They're so hot. And they're very complicated when you want to answer the call of nature. And uh, so there were um, instance after instance where he, that would be part of what kicked it off. And then the timing, you know, it was a time before uh, corporate globalization. There was a kind of elbow room, you know, the historical moments. I believe there's, we are in a historical moment now where uh, relocalization and and organization is more possible uh, than it was and certainly than it will be if we miss the boat. I uh, want to thank you so much for bringing this story of success to us at a time when we really need such stories. And um, I was reminded when I was listening to the success of um, your group that organizations like CARE that I've worked for in the Andes could learn a lot about empowering local people and I wish there was some way that they could be trained to help empower um, people because I've seen these big international um, groups come in with their grand ideas without recognizing what the local view is or the local concern is and then when the money dries up they just move on to another project leaving people just as impoverished with little change. And I just wish somehow there could be training um, of this, this kind of a larger organization that could go from village to village and have, have the organization to be village to village. So, again, thank you. And oh, I'm going to see what I can do about it. Yeah, you work on that. Yeah, I, I, I'm gonna, I have some ideas. <laughs> Hi, I have a question about what do you think we could do to make to encourage localization to happen, or how do you see that? To encourage what? Localization to happen. You know, you said we have an opportunity right now. So, yes. Yes. So what could we do to take yes. it, make it happen? Well, um, a zillion opportunities, um, depending on, because we have to look for uh, food. How are we going to have enough food when the oil gets scarce and expensive? So oil security, uh, health, energy. So one of the things that, and there are lots and lots of groups working on these. So I've noticed that there's, um, I uh, participated in an event this summer with a uh, little organization called the Post Carbon Institute 
And they have um, started in various towns. I read read at some length what they're doing up in Willits. Uh, They show a movie. This in this case, the end of suburbia. Have any of you seen the end of suburbia? Yeah, and um, and you've noticing how the price of oil per barrel is going up through the roof. So it's just going faster than people thought. And then uh, people are finding their strength in each other, and they started meeting after this. Then they started breaking up. So neighbors, their neighbors getting to know each other that didn't before. So it's just a a wonderful shift in the quality of the community life right away as people start feeling, um, putting their heads together and sharing a sense of concern and responsibility. And then they broke up into committees to look at food and to look at energy and to look at transport and so if you look up postcarbon.org on the website, you'll see what I read about that. But there are, um, this is happening all over, like at New College, for example. They're doing a whole program for their students where they'll pick a town and do exactly that. There's a lot of good, good. Um, I would strongly recommend the work of one Richard Heinberg, he wrote a book called uh, When the Party's Over about uh, the oil crash and now power down. And his, his thinking in that, he's a person who reminds me a lot of Sarvodia because he comes from a big spiritual place. And he's not panic. He keeps a low center of gravity. And the, uh, it just thrills me to see this happening. It makes me glad that I uh, live now and that I live in Northern California. <laughs> yeah, so take advantage of it. Do look that up. Yeah? Oh, good. Now, would you like to do a practice all right, now this is an adaptation of, that I have done uh, of the Sarvodhya's use of the Brahma Viharas. The Brahma Viharas, or as they call them, the four abodes of the Buddha, uh, loving kindness, also known as the four immeasurables. Do you do this in your Sangha? Yeah. Loving kindness, compassion. Join the joy of others and equanimity. So after working with Sarvodhya and bringing that back here and in my work, I've put it into movement. So where we move around the room and use other people as a meditation object. It won't hurt. (laughs) And, And I actually call it the Bodhisattva walk. So it was inspired by Sarvodhya. Oh, wait till I tell you this. It was, insp- <laughs> it was inspired by Sarvodhya, but I n- knew that it would be too wild for 
several years. So, but <laughs> year before last, Ari was here, and I was hosting him. We did a workshop together, and I just screwed up my courage, and I did the Bodhisattva walk because I said this is inspired directly by, by Sarvodia, but they would never do it. And so, because they would just do it quietly, just sitting like this instead of moving around. And uh, Ari and his assistant said, Oh, this is terrific. We've got to take this back to Sri Lanka. It's what anthropologists call the pizza effect, you know, where one culture has something and then it's imitated overseas. And then when it's imitated, you kind of like the imitation and bring it back. So uh, let's stand up. And I will stay put. Now clear the floor. Now stand up and come down into this. You know, let me have the the um, mic on a wand. Yeah. So, so what you do is you're going to start walking around. Just start walking around as if this were a Times Square and I had just hired you as a lot of extras. If you let your eyes go out of focus, you won't bump. That's it. You could pick it up the speed a little bit. And if you're all going in one direction, you could turn and move back upstream, so to speak. <clears throat> all right, now <clears throat> we're going to have one stop for each abode of the Buddha. So you will find yourself in front of another person, and you will take their right hand in yours. Uh, If you don't have a partner, put your hand up. Okay. So uh, just take in the presence of this brother-sister being. This is your opportunity to experience the power and beauty of this abode of the Buddha. And it's not a staring contest. You can just sort of take... Just take in the whole thing, because this is a unique, distinct individual, unlike anyone who has ever lived before or who will ever live in the future. (laughs) And as you stand there taking in their presence, open your awareness to the gifts and powers and potentialities there are in this being. There are depths of courage and compassion, reserves of wit and wisdom, patience and perseverance. There are gifts that this person herself, himself, doesn't know yet that they have and that you can only guess at. 
But imagine what it would be like if these powers in this person were believed in, if they were accessed, if they were used for our world. And when you think how good that would be, know that what you are, know how much you are desiring, how strongly you wish that this person be free from fear and how much you desire that this person be free from greed and hatred from confusion and all the causes of suffering and when you experience how much you genuinely truly want that know that you are experiencing the great loving kindness is excellent for the healing of our world. So now you bow. Take your leave of this brother-sister being and move on. in front of another being and you take both their hands in yours and now we'll enter the second abode of the Buddha and this time as you take in the presence of this brother-sister being. Open your awareness to the suffering that is in and that has been in this life. As in all human lives, there has been in the life of the one before you loss, anguish, disappointment, rejection, There are hurts in this person's life that go a long way back and they may never have told another living being and they just held them in their heart where they carved a place that could open to the pain of our world. And there are hurts that just happened this last week. Now you know you cannot remove those hurts. You are not that powerful. It never works that way. But what you can do is this. What you can do is to be unafraid to be with the power of another, to be with the pain and the suffering of another person. And when you feel your readiness, your willingness to be with the suffering of another. Know that what you are experiencing is the Mahakaruna, the great compassion. It is excellent 
for the healing of our world. So again, you bow. You take your leave of this being and move on. Once more, you find yourself in front of a brother-sister being. And you enter the third abode. And put up your hand if you lack a partner. Here, you come with me. So put your hands palm to palm together at shoulder height. And as you look into the face of this fellow being, think how good it would be to work on a common project toward a shared goal, something big. To plot and plan together and take risks together So let this person show you your strengths and you let them see their own strengths to celebrate the little victories along the way, to console each other over the inevitable setbacks, to forgive each other when you mess up, and to just be there for the other. And when you imagine how good that would be, know that what you're opening to is the great wealth, the joy in each other's joy, the power in each other's power, the Maha Mudita. Again, you bow and move on. So for one, for the last abode, you find yourself in front of somebody and take their, both their hands in yours. Put your hand up to find, if you don't have a partner, sit down if you'd like to sit down. That's good. <laughs> if your legs are tired. Well, you can just do it with me again. Come on over here. (laughs) 
So now we enter the last abode of the Buddha. And as we do, we let our consciousness drop deep within us, almost below the level that words can express, to where the currents of life interweave our existences through space and time. And we know that on this long journey of life, we have been in many forms. There have been many birthings and many dyings and many connections with each other in different forms. And you look at the face in front of you Imagining that this one could be at another place, another time, your lover or your enemy, your parent or your child. And now you meet again, almost as if by appointment on this brink of time. And you know that our lives are as interwoven as nerve cells in the mind of a great being. And that out of that web we cannot fall. You know that there is no stupidity, no cowardice, no failure you can ever commit that would separate you from that web because that web is what you are. So rest in that knowing. That is the great peace, the Maha Upeka. And out of that you can act and risk everything and let every encounter be a homecoming to your true nature. Indeed, it is so. So again, we bow.